Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. In a post-Cold War world, threats to peace come in small places, Bosnia, Kosovo, Sudan, Iraq. This is Colleen Chaddix for the Yale Office of Public Affairs talking with Gavin Hood, whose career has sent him to all those destinations. He's worked there as a human rights lawyer, and more recently, as a counterterrorism advisor for the British Foreign Office. Tell me a little bit about what set you on this career path. It seems that you're always heading off to places that most of us would try desperately to avoid. <laughs> well, first of all, Colleen, thanks very much for this opportunity Thank to you. talk with you. Um, I think that um, we're all affected by the events around us, uh, especially during our days at university and college when we're younger. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, it was the conflict in the former Yugoslavia, the ethnic cleansing and the massive killings in the former Yugoslavia, as well as the genocide in Rwanda. So I became a a barrister in the United Kingdom, really with a conviction that the law uh, is a tool for prevention, protection, and and change. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to use that tool to have an impact on the lives of people who'd been less fortunate than myself. Um, and the reality is, though, once you've started on this path, you do get bitten by the bug. And, uh, you know, there's a great sense of adventure and travel. And I really wanted to get out and about and learn more about the world. So is it is it boring to have a normal sort of nine to five life in a, a relatively safe environment for you? I'm sure that will become less boring in due course. <laughs> <laughs> At one time, you worked for the International Criminal Court prosecuting people accused of genocide, and now you're advising your government on security issues. Is that a big shift, or do you see protecting human rights and fighting terrorism as closely related? Yeah. I mean, I I really do think that there is a fundamental uh, link between both of those themes, and and that is the importance of the rule of law. Um, If you look at the International Criminal Court, um, uh, its mandate is to prosecute the most serious international crimes in the world, mm-hmm. crimes against humanity and war crimes. And, and it represents a commitment um, that these crimes are unacceptable to the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why the institution was set up. Uh, and I do believe that a world without that sort of commitment and without institutions like the International Criminal Court, we'd be in a state of utter chaos. Um, and that's why you know I worked for the court, and that's why I think it's so important for the court to succeed. And if you if you take that model and you look at the issue of terrorism, um, our response to terrorism, our domestic and international response to terrorism, also must be grounded in the rule of law. And it's vital that we do that for legitimacy, and it's vital that we do that in order to be able to uh, um, have, have partners work with us against these threats. Mm-hmm. If you break the rule of law, then you lose legitimacy and you ultimately lose lose the battle uh, and you play into the hands of those who would wish to to, to radicalize and those who would wish to push other people uh, towards uh, also breaking the law and towards violence. Um, I mean, often, often people will say, well, doesn't the law hold back what you need to do? Um, isn't the law an obstacle mm-hmm. to security? And I think uh, very much the opposite is the case. The law uh, provides an intrinsic tool, a key tool, in order to achieve the kind of security that you need. And we need to use the rule of law, and we need to adapt the rule of law. Well, that's certainly been a tension in the U.S. We, we've talked about abandoning or altering some of our traditional commitment to human rights because of the overwhelming need to protect the population against more terrorist attacks. So how do you reassure people who are scared, who are legitimately scared, 
that they need to stick with these principles, even in difficult times? Well, I think that um, it's been interesting to see the uh, reaction recently of your Supreme Court and, and your, your, your courts of appeal. Um, in the context of Guantanamo, mm-hmm. where the court has taken a more active role in, uh, in a sense, coming back to the Constitution and coming back to the basic legal principles that underpin in the American system of justice. Um, now, what we what we need to be able to show is that um, whilst restoring those base those basic principles, um, you are also still able to provide the security and protection that people need and address the fears that they have. Um, and I think this is going to be uh, one of the challenges for your next uh, president and one in which I am very confident that uh, you know, the UK government and myself as I move to a role in Washington, in, mm-hmm. in the British Embassy in Washington, is ready to work with your, your new uh, US government on these issues. Tell me a little bit logistically about your work with the ICC. What is it like to go into a sovereign nation and say, you need to let us conduct an investigation, you even let, need to let us hold a trial? Um, not always easy, <laughs> I think, is the starting point. Um, the, the ICC is a permanent court, and, uh, uh, and what we found very quickly was that uh, we were actually working in conflicts that were ongoing. Um, unlike many of the other international criminal courts that have been set up, uh, they, they often would follow. They were part of a peace arrangement. After the fact, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, the ICC is a permanent court, and has responsibility for investigating and prosecuting crimes in ongoing conflicts. Mm-hmm. These are very complicated environments, um, and you know it's very important to be conscious to the complexities, to be ready to listen to all sides of the uh, of the conflict, government, uh, local organisations, international organisations, and work and work with them. At the same time. Um, the uh, the ICC, as I said earlier in the conversation, uh, with the establishment of the court, um, we have now the international community has now drawn a line and said these crimes, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and genocide, are unacceptable, mm-hmm. and impunity and immunity is not an option. So, in some cases, the governments um, uh, uh, in which the uh, uh, the court is working, the for example, in, in northern Uganda, the government of Uganda and the government of the Democratic Republic of Congo mm-hmm. invited the court to come in and investigate. In other cases, such as Darfur and Sudan, that is not the case. Um, and in fact, the Sudanese government has been very reluctant to cooperate with the court. Um, the, the, the starting point for the ICC is that it will only act, it will only prosecute where national authorities are unwilling or unable to do so. Mm-hmm. And the message there is, take ownership of the problem yourself. Mm-hmm. So it's only if you fail to do that will the ICC step forward. I think, though, m- my experience ultimately, at the end of the day, um, all countries that are emerging from conflicts, and particularly from conflicts that have involved massive crimes and, and rapes and murders, need some form of justice and accountability in order to turn the page. And they need institutions like the International Criminal Court to help them turn the page. Um, And certainly that has been my experience. It would be very difficult, I would think, for a nation to do that entirely internally. That's correct. Because everyone's involved. That's right. And also it's a question of capacity. the ICC's focus is really on a small number of individuals who bear the greatest responsibility for these crimes. 
Um, these are the sort of top layer of people who right. commanded Not or orchestrated. Exactly. And it, it's often very difficult for countries that are emerging from conflicts to actually carry out the investigations or, or carry out the prosecutions. And that's why you've seen, um, I think, uh, you know, in the case of Sierra Leone, you, you've seen the very senior figures like Charles Taylor now being moved from the country into The Hague uh, and, and being prosecuted by mm -hmm. the special court in The Hague. Let's talk a little bit about Darfur. Um, it, it's distinct from Rwanda in that the world did not just avert its eyes. The African Union is sending in troops. The ICC did conduct trials there, but the, the killing continues. Why is the situation so intractable? Yeah, well, I think that um, it goes back to the point that I made earlier, that these are very, very complicated uh, conflicts. Um, and Darfur is, is, is no, um, you know, no better example than Darfur. Mm. Um, when, you, when you visit there, when you talk to people on the ground, you realize that it's not just a simple case of one group against another. You have um, problems of desertification, the, the water crisis, you have um, uh, as a result of, of climate issues, uh, you have changes in the cattle routes and, mm -hmm. and the movement of the nomadic tribes. All of these come into a melting pot to create this environment in which there is a, you know, a, an ongoing conflict. Um, we've also seen that uh, the international and regional tools that, that we have, the Security Council, the peacekeeping operations, the African Union, its peacekeeping capacity, has been insufficient mm -hmm. to address the the problem of Darfur. Um, now, certainly peacekeeping is a key component to finding a solution, um, but there's a reality uh, that is often missed, and that is that Darfur is the size of France, right. um, and a great deal of Darfur uh, is inaccessible, um, certainly by road or, or you know, by, by normal transport. Um, so, and, and the, the number of uh, peacekeepers and the capacity of those pe peacekeepers is extremely limited. So whilst peacekeeping uh, is essential, it's certainly not going to be the solution. Um, and that brings us back to the point that you need to be able to have dialogue with all of the different communities uh, at all levels that are involved in the conflict. You need to be able to go to those root causes of the conflict uh, and address them. In order to do that, you need both the willingness on the part of those different representatives, those different parties, and you need a capacity on their part to have that dialogue and to actually reach those solutions. Um, and, uh, you know, and that, uh, I think, is what the uh, United Nations and the African Union and, and other countries in the international community are working towards in Darfur. And the ICC is part of that picture. Mm -hmm. I mean, the ICC has stepped into or been invited in by the Security Council into the Darfur uh, conflict. And essentially, the ICC is drawing a line for those parties to say, um, it, these are the sorts of things that are unacceptable. These are the basic normative principles that are unacceptable. You cannot target civilians. You cannot rape civilians in this context. Um, so, and, and there's the role played by the court. Ultimately, what are the ingredients to stability? In, in any conflict? <laughs> well, I'd actually, I think if I, if I had the answer <laughs> to that, I'd probably be a tenured professor yeah. at Yale or, or even or president Secretary of Yale, general or, or, or Secretary yeah. General. Yeah, I'm not ruling that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, uh, again, 
The answer is very complex. Um, undoubtedly, there needs to be, uh, uh, often will need to be a military or a peacekeeping component to finding a solution, finding the beginning of a path to stability. Um, so that is a necessary uh, component, but certainly not the answer. I think for me, uh, as I said earlier, it really is about human security in, a, in, in the broader sense of that word. It's about um, getting to the root causes of conflict, uh, addressing questions of poverty, uh, addressing questions of education, uh, health, uh, promoting tolerance, promoting uh, interfaith dialogue, promoting intercommunity dialogue, interethnic dialogue. Um, but also creating uh, dividends for peace. People have to be able to see that mm -hmm. uh, there is an alternative to conflict and that their interests are best achieved through peace. Uh, so you know, I think if you look at Northern Ireland, uh, which uh, you know, until very recently uh, was a, a conflict, you know, sort of on the uh, highest uh, priority agenda for the United Kingdom, um, Really, uh, after the signature of the uh, agreement uh, mm -hmm. in, in Northern Ireland, it, it, was, it was the immediate kind of um, dividend that the people in Northern Ireland saw, right. jobs, uh, uh, in economy, uh, all of those things, I think, feed into people's minds. And, and, and ultimately, they say, well, actually, yeah, it's better to have stability. There was uh, very little incentive to indeed. continue the violence. Yeah. Um, Northern Ireland is a good example. Um, Darfur is a good example. Other places that you've worked, the, the Old East Bloc and the Middle East. Conflicts are very often talked about as ethnic conflicts. Is that, is that too simplistic an understanding, and does that prevent us sometimes from working for lasting solutions? I think it, I think it is oversimplistic. It's sort of a convenient label in a way for us to understand mm -hmm. or to be able to conceptualize what's happening on the ground. And, um, you know, for many of us, we, we, we would never have lived or worked in, in those environments. Um, so it's hard, to even, it's hard to even envisage what's happening. Right. Um, but I don't think it, it fully explains the, the situation. Um, I think certainly ethnicity is something that's often instrumentalized in these conflicts. It's often used to fuel or escalate conflicts. Mm -hmm. But it, and, and of course, we all, uh, I think, seek protection from within our groups. If we feel threatened, we generally will want to turn to our community, be that our religious community, our ethnic community, or even our, our towns and villages for protection. Um, but it, it, it doesn't, for me, uh, fully explain these conflicts. And it always struck me, one of the first jobs um, uh, that I, I took when I left uh, the uh, life in a law firm in London mm -hmm. um, was uh, a job with a local organization in Bosnia. And this organization, this was fairly shortly after the Dayton Peace Agreements had been signed, and this was a local organization that, um, that comprised uh, Bosnian, Muslims, uh, Serbs, and Croats all working together under the same roof. And it struck me at that time that um, these people were working together. Mm -hmm. They did share a number of similar uh, visions of the future and values. And that was, you know, they wanted to work, they wanted to earn money for their families, they wanted health, they wanted education, they wanted stability, they wanted to return to a normal life. Um, and it wasn't about ethnicity right. uh, at that stage.
Now, a lot of your work's focusing on Iraq now, I know. Um, President-elect Obama has said that he plans to withdraw U.S. troops from Iraq. What do you think Iraq is going to be like without a U.S. presence? Yeah. Well, I, every time I, um, I'm asked a question about Iraq or I think about Iraq, I, I, I have to go back to my experience, which was in 2003. I was uh, in Baghdad in April 2003. Um, and I think that was probably a very different Iraq uh, than the one that my colleagues have uh, have, have worked in mm -hmm. since then. There was a you know, there was a, a sense of hope and almost euphoria about the uh, uh, the the removal of the regime at that time. And I had the great privilege of being able to travel around the country and visit some of the sites uh, like Babylon and see the hanging mm -hmm. gardens of Babylon and. And, and get out and see, you know, meet people, meet, meet people in villages and towns. And Iraq has such a rich heritage, um, has such a, an educated and, and capable population, um, which really gives you um, a huge uh, sense of opportunity for the future and hope yeah. for the future. Now, the truth is you need security and stability to be able to maximize that potential. And the question, therefore, is whether or not the Iraqi security forces are going to be capable of taking up that task, um, but also whether or not the Iraqi uh, po uh, politicians uh, and, and community representatives and leaders are going to be ready and willing to also take on that task and be ready and willing to represent all of the Iraqi mm -hmm. people, regardless of where they're from and, and who they are in the best interests of the country as a, at large. So really, I, I, I think uh, if, if that can be achieved, then Iraq has a very promising future. Tell me about your World Fellows experience. How do you think it'll affect your work? Well, it's a wonderful experience, and uh, I'm, I'm very sad that now it's coming to an end in the coming weeks. Um, it's been an opportunity to have such a tremendous dialogue with um, members of Yale faculty, uh, but also with 17 uh, very uh, interesting and, uh, and accomplished individuals whom I know you've met some of them will know what I'm talking about. Um, so really, you know, I go back to my, my work with a new set of friends, uh, both amongst my fellow fellows, but also uh, the Yale community uh, as a whole. And that is a remarkable network, and one which I have no doubt that I'll be turning to in the in the future uh, to help me out um, as I as I go back to work and continue my life. Thank you. We've been talking with Gavin Hood, who's participating in Yale's World Fellows Program for emerging leaders around the globe. For more information, please visit yale.edu/worldfellows.